Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series, I'll be telling you the history of professional and occasionally amateur football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game from the mob game of the Middle Ages to the modern day. At the end of the last episode, the United Kingdom was still awaiting the aftershocks of the Wall Street crash. By the end of the 1930s, though, the shadow of war hung heavily over Europe for the second time in a generation. And by the end of that war, the politics of the entire planet had changed forever. This is the story of football in England and Wales, from 1930 to 1946. They used to tell me I was building a dream, and so I followed the mob. When there was earth to plow or guns to bear, I was always there, right on the job. They used to tell me I was building a dream with peace and glory ahead. Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread Once I built a railroad I made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done, brother can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower. When Wall Street crashed on the 29th of October 1929, its after effects were far reaching. In the United Kingdom, unemployment rose sharply, although these effects weren't felt evenly across the country, with some parts considerably more badly affected than others. Coal mining, steel, shipbuilding and textiles were amongst the most badly affected industry. Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, Sheffield, Lancashire, Tyneside, Wearside, South Wales and Glasgow were the regions that bore the brunt of the Great Depression and it would take until the end of the decade for the national unemployment rate to return to the same level again as it had been before it started. Other parts of the country, however, escaped unscathed, and in some cases prospered. The south-east did very well out of house-building, as England's race for the suburbs began, whilst parts of the Midlands and the Thames Valley found prosperity from growing car sales to be good for their local economies. But the places that suffered the most had a tendency to be football strongholds, and as unemployment rates jumped, so attendances slumped and for a small number of clubs, it was all too much. The formation of the association game in the Lancashire town of Wigan 
had been a complicated story from its beginnings. With the town gripped by rugby, a number of failed attempts were made to get association football off the ground before Wigan United finally came to life in 1919, before themselves being closed down for making lost time payments to players in 1921. This club's replacement club, Wigan Association, then had to change their name and eventually became Wigan Borough, all within two years. Having just finished in 17th place in the Lancashire Combination League at the end of the 1920-21 season, and with their new name, they somewhat optimistically applied for a place in the Football League's new 3rd Division North, and to general astonishment were voted in. They ended up spending 10 years there, and it was not an especially happy decade for the club. On the 13th of December 1926, for example, Wigan Borough recorded a then-record low attendance for the Football League of 644 for a match against Barrow. Ironically, they won this match by eight goals to nil. Having had a best-ever season finishing in fourth place in Division 3 North in 1929, though, the club's descent was rapid. Attracting crowds has always been a tall order against the mighty Wigan RFC. But as the Great Depression washed through Lancashire, crowds tumbled and debts mounted. Wigan Borough were almost suspended by the Football League at the end of the 1930-31 season over an unpaid debt of £806. But two player sales and selling season tickets early allowed the club to start the 1931-32 season. When another demand had to be issued the following October though, the club couldn't meet it and resigned its place in the Football League, collapsing into almost immediate liquidation. Wigan Athletic were formed following a public meeting in May of the following year. Wigan Borough are often overlooked, even within the relatively niche area of now-defunct former clubs of the Football League. Even their inglorious record low attendance only lasted for four years before being beaten by one of the most remarkable and unsuccessful experiments in the history of English professional football. Thames Association FC, or Thames AFC, were formed in the same way as Liverpool, Chelsea and Sheffield United, to fill an existing stadium. When the 120,000 capacity West Ham Stadium in Custom House East London opened in 1928, its owners realised that its core business of speedway and greyhound racing took place during the week, and that this meant that extra revenue could be raised from having a football team play there on Saturdays. After just two seasons in the Southern League, Thames AFC were elected into the Football League in 1930, but their stay turned out to be brief and miserable. Halfway through their first season, they shattered Wigan Borough's record league low attendance when just 469 people turned out to see their home match against Luton Town. The West Ham Stadium is the largest capacity stadium ever to have hosted a Football League or even Premier League match and it hosted its smallest ever attendance as well. At the end of the 1931-32 season, Wigan Borough confirmed that they would not be seeking re-election for the following season and were immediately wound up to be replaced by Aldershot. Merthyr Town, the club that Thames had replaced in 1930, 
went bust themselves in 1934. At the other end of football's food chain, however, things did carry on a little more like normal. Arsenal, who'd lifted their first major trophy with the 1930 FA Cup, went on to win the following year's league championship under the managership of Herbert Chapman. The 1931-32 season would see Arsenal finish in second place in the league to Everton, whilst their appearance in that season's FA Cup final would end in controversy when they were beaten by Newcastle United with a little assistance from the referee. Arsenal had taken an early lead thanks to a goal from Bob John, but with seven minutes to play of the first half, the Newcastle winger Jimmy Richardson pulled the ball back from beyond the goal line for Jack Allen to score. Allen scored again in the second half for Newcastle to win the cup, but controversy raged after photographs clearly showed the ball crossing the goal line before Richardson crossed for the equalising goal. Chapman, however, was one of the great innovators of the age, and he continued to experiment. Having introduced white sleeves and hooped socks to his team in order to make them more visible to each other, he was amongst the first to experiment with white footballs in training matches, with the colouring coming from dipping balls in buckets of whitewash throughout games. Further experimentation came with the introduction of numbers on players' shirts, and despite them being banned for use in all matches by the FA, he had floodlights installed under the roof of the stands at Highbury, so that training wasn't restricted to daylight hours only. Arsenal's love affair with this avuncular Yorkshireman, however, came to a sudden and tragic end in January 1934. On New Year's Day, Chapman travelled north to see Bury play Notts County on a scouting mission, and then moved on to see Sheffield Wednesday, their next opponents, play Birmingham City. Already ill with a cold, Chapman returned to London to see Arsenal's third team play a training match against non-league Guildford City, only for his condition to significantly deteriorate afterwards as pneumonia set in. Herbert Chapman died at home in North London in the early hours of the morning on the 6th of January 1934. He left behind a wife and four children, the youngest of whom was just 14 years of age. Tributes emblematic of the game he loved so well are paid to the memory of Herbert Chapman, the Arsenal Football Club's manager, by sportsmen who have come from all parts of the country and abroad to attend the funeral service at Hendon. With the passing of this great figure, the football world loses one of its most famous personalities, who did so much to develop the technique of the winter game. Arsenal players and directors form a cordon through which the cortege passes. And with the funeral procession in the churchyard, the last farewells are taken of a firm friend and a great sportsman. On the international stage, meanwhile, the home nations remained in a state of self-imposed exile following their resignation from FIFA in 1928 over mistimed payments for amateur players. The first FIFA World Cup in 1930 didn't do much to change the widely held belief in the ongoing superiority of the British national teams. And beating the English was, by the early 1930s, amongst the main aims for any ambitious footballing nation. The effects of the Great Depression on the UK had been severe, but other countries were even more severely impacted, and the effects on European political life were particularly troublesome. Exactly 12 months before the death of Herbert Chapman, Adolf Hitler was appointed the Chancellor of Germany by President Paul von Hindenburg, 
Hitler's immediate desire was to undo the liberalism of the previous Weimar Republic, and central to his plans was the manipulation of sport for the purposes of propaganda. Munich won the bidding for the 1936 Olympic Games, and the German national football team was also eager to make a greater impact on the international stage. A friendly was arranged against England at White Hart Lane for November 1935, but, alarmed by the anti-Semitism already evident in Hitler's rhetoric and early policies, the FA, Home Office and Foreign Office were all targeted by trade unions and Jewish organisations, calling for the match to be cancelled. The government ignored these requests and protests. They were more than aware of the fact that the German government's desire was to use this match as a propaganda exercise, but Anglo-German relations, it was felt, needed to be rebuilt after the previous war, and the government wanted to keep things peaceful. When the match was played, 10,000 German supporters made the trip to London on their best behaviour. England won the match comfortably, but the German team gave a decent account of itself and the travelling supporters left exactly the impression that the German government, who'd issued them with strict instructions on how to behave, wanted them to leave. A return match was scheduled for Berlin, three years later. The Germans had learned an important lesson from a similar trip to London that Italy, also under the grip of fascism, had made a year earlier. Italy had hosted the 1934 World Cup and had won it under dubious circumstances, and Benito Mussolini was so eager to cement his team's status as the best in the world that he offered each of his players £150, that's £6,000 adjusted for inflation, and a new Alfa Romeo car, should they beat the English. By contrast, England may have hyped the match as the real World Cup final, but the selection committee ended up picking a very inexperienced team, including a record seven players from Arsenal and a young Stanley Matthews, winning only his second cap for his country. None of the England team that started the match had more than ten caps. With no substitutes allowed, the match started badly for Italy when centre-half Luis Monti broke his foot after just two minutes of play. With Monti playing on despite his serious injury, England scored three times and missed a penalty kick in the first 12 minutes before Monty was withdrawn. It was a bad-tempered match from the very start. Eddie Hapgood had his nose broken and Eric Brook fractured his arm, while Ted Drake was punched. Italy came back into the match during the second half with two goals from Giuseppe Meazza narrowing the deficit to one, but England still hung on to win. The real World Cup final then ended with both teams claiming victory. England had won the match itself by three goals to two, but Italy claimed that they would have won had they not been effectively playing with ten men for 88 minutes. Their players were fated at home as the Lions of Highbury, but in England the match left a bad taste in the mouth. The Football Association came close to withdrawing from all international football as a result of it. By the time of England's return match against Germany in Berlin, the political mood across Europe had changed considerably. By the time it was played in May 1938, Germany had crashed through the Versailles Treaty, the post-war settlement from the last World War, and was remilitarising at pace. The policy of a British government which already knew the potential costs, both human and financial, of going to war, 
was pursuing a policy of peace through appeasement. There were many who believed that the Versailles document was unnecessarily humiliating, and many more in England, including such influential figures as the Duke of Windsor, Viscount Rothermere, the editor of the Daily Mail, and Diana and Unity Mitford, who either didn't care about the anti-Semitism of the Nazis, or who were either tacitly or openly in favour of it. The match was played in Berlin's Olympic Stadium on the 13th of May 1938. The England players were requested to give a Nazi salute before the match as a gesture towards Joseph Goebbels, Rudolf Hess and Hermann Goering, all of whom would be in attendance as part of a crowd of 110,000 people. The England players initially refused to give such a salute, but pressure from both the FA and the British ambassador to Germany Sir Neville Henderson, led to the players eventually acceding to the request. England won the match by six goals to three, but Germany had won another propaganda victory nevertheless. In August of that year, Germany invaded Czechoslovakia, and nobody did anything. On the 30th of September 1938, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned from Munich with a treaty which he claimed would bring peace for our time. Czechoslovakia was left to its fate. The peace would hold for less than a year. Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. They made him blow a bugle for his Uncle Sam. It really brought him down because he couldn't jam. The captain seemed to understand. Because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band. And now the company jumps when he plays reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. A toot, a toot, a toot de la, a toot de blows it a to the bar. In boogie rhythm, he can't blow a note unless the bass and guitar is playing with him. He makes a company jump when he plays reveille. The Football League's 1939-40 season was suspended on the 5th of September 1939, after just three games had been played. Blackpool led the way in the First Division, with three wins out of three. War had been declared two days earlier, and emergency powers acts meant the banning of large crowds, and this included for football matches. Almost 800 players signed up to fight before the introduction of conscription, but it was still considered important for morale back home that some form of the game exists in order to boost what was left of the feeling that things could carry on very much as they had done before fighting broke out. And football's war effort didn't end there either. Before the introduction of conscription, clubs were used as recruitment centres. Arsenal's Highbury was requisitioned as HQ for North London's Air Raid Precautions Unit and as a first aid training centre, while the East Stand at White Hart Lane was commandeered as a mortuary for bomb victims. 
Elsewhere in the country, Preston's Deepdale and Swindon Town's county ground were both prisoner of war camps, while Exeter City's ground became a training centre for US troops. Less than two weeks after matches were banned, the government backpedalled, allowing friendly matches between teams so long as crowds no greater than 8,000 were in attendance. This number was later revised upwards to 15,000. A travel limit of 50 miles had been put in place by the government, so the Football League was divided into seven different regions, with London itself divided into two areas. The Football League, encouraged by growing talk that this was a phony war, launched the Football League War Cup. Regionally based, with a Northern final, a Southern final and then a National final to be played at Wembley, the first War Cup fitted all 137 of its matches into just nine weeks. All of the fixtures were complete by the end of the January. But then the decision was made to move the final to June 1940 because of safety concerns. There were fears that Wembley could be targeted by the Luftwaffe on the day of the final itself, and these fears were probably the biggest reason why the crowd for the final was just 42,300 people to watch West Ham United play Blackburn Rovers. First Lord of the Admiralty, Mr A.V. Alexander, greets the teams. Blackburn Rovers in the quartered shirts and West Ham United with the light sleeves on the left. You'd hardly know it was wartime except for the late kick-off and the mighty cheer that goes up when they see some of the wounded boys of the BEF. The kick-off is at half-past six. West Ham are expected to win and they hardly disappoint their fans. Right from the start, they seem to have that little extra brilliance which puts them just on top of the hard-working, energetic Blackburn Rovers. But right from the start, it's a grand game. Time and again, West Ham attacked with short passes down the centre. Time and again, they looked like scoring, only to be frustrated by superb work by Barron in the Blackburn goal. But always there's the threat of one of those West Ham drives breaking through. And after 35 minutes, one does to put West Ham one up. And that's how it stays until half-time, with West Ham leading by one goal to none. In the second half, Blackburn get in some superb spells of attacking, and once or twice they come very near to getting an equalising goal. But West Ham hold their advantage, and the first cup final of this war comes to the usual roaring end, with Mr Alexander presenting the cup to West Ham United. The Battle of Britain began less than three months after the first War Cup final, but still the game played on. Regional leagues had been set up so that matches could be played on a week-in, week-out basis, but the cup remained the main draw for spectators. The format of the competition, however, was subject to the whims of both the organisers and the government. The following year's competition ended with a draw and a replay. Preston North End, who had already won the Northern Regional League, won a double of sorts when they beat Arsenal 2-1 in a replay at Ewood Park following their draw at Wembley. The following year, meanwhile, the final was played over two legs for the only time, with Wolverhampton Wanderers beating Sunderland. From 1943 on, the final was moved to Stamford Bridge, and with heavy bombing raids by now a fact of life, the trophy was shared between Charlton Athletic and Aston Villa after they drew their final in 1944. The final wartime cup saw Bolton Wanderers beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge to lift the trophy. The match was played on the 2nd of June 1945, three weeks after victory in Europe had been declared.
timing of the end of the war and the fact that so many players were still away meant that there was insufficient time or resources to set up a football league programme for the following season. But the FA Cup stepped into the breach. For the only time in its history, the tournament was played over two legs until the quarter-final stage in order to bring a little extra revenue into clubs, whilst a regionalised draw meant local derbies all over the place. Bristol City, for example, played Bristol Rovers over two legs in the second round, with City winning comfortably on aggregate, whilst Accrington Stanley held Manchester United to a 2-2 draw at Peel Park in the first leg of their third round match, before losing the second leg at Main Road. Manchester United were using Main Road because Old Trafford was rendered unusable by bomb damage. They didn't return there for league matches until August 1949, by which time it was a full decade since league football had last been played there. And they were far from the only club affected in such a way either. The main stand at Plymouth Argyle's home park was all but destroyed by bomb damage, and scores of other grounds also suffered significant damage from bombing, including both the Berlin Ground and the Den in London, both the City Ground and Meadow Lane in Nottingham, as well as Roker Park, the Dell, Goodison Park and Portman Road, amongst others. Amongst the most badly damaged grounds, though, was Birmingham City's St Andrews. In 1941, it suffered 20 direct hits from Luftwaffe bombing, which destroyed the roof of the cop, badly damaged the railway end and forced the team to play elsewhere. It was, therefore, a surprising choice of venue for a wartime international match between England and Wales. On safety grounds, spectators were required to purchase tickets in advance and numbers were limited to 25,000. Three months later, the main stand, which was being used as a temporary National Fire Service station, burned down when a fireman mistook a bucket of petrol for water when intending to damp down a brazier, destroying all of the club's records and equipment. Birmingham City eventually returned home in 1943. The 1945-46 FA Cup was, however, also tainted with tragedy. Bolton Wanderers and Stoke City were drawn to play each other in the quarter-finals of the competition, with Bolton winning the first leg by two goals to nil at the Victoria ground. It is estimated that the crowd for the second leg at Burnham Park was in excess of 85,000. Entrance to the Bolton end of the ground, which had no roof, was from the Manchester Road only. The disaster happened at the railway end of the ground where, in common with many other post-war grounds, facilities were rudimentary. The bank was crude, just dirt with odd flagstones for steps. Although there was room towards the burdened side of the ground, part of the stand had been requisitioned by the Ministry of Supply and it had not yet been returned to normal use following the war. In addition, the turnstiles at the east end of the railway embankment which adjoined the Burnden stand had been closed since 1940. At the time, of course, fans paid at the turnstiles rather than buying tickets beforehand. As a result, the end became packed and over capacity, and it was decided to close the turnstiles at 2.40pm. This, however, did not stop more people from entering the ground, 
with people climbing in from the railway, climbing over the closed turnstiles, and, when a locked gate was opened, entering through that. Such was the pressure from the railway end that many fans were inexorably pushed along the side of the pitch, around the far end, and eventually right out of the ground, ending up in the car park and unable to watch the game. Shortly after it started, the crowd began spilling onto the pitch, and the match was temporarily stopped as the pitch was cleared. However, at this time, two barriers collapsed and the crowd fell forward, crushing those underneath. The game was restarted, but was quickly halted again when a police officer came onto the pitch to speak to the referee, George Dutton, to inform him that there had been a fatality. He, in turn, called the two captains together to inform them, and the players left the pitch. The dead and injured were taken from the railway end terrace, and those who had died laid along the touchline covered in coats. A little under half an hour after leaving the pitch, the game was restarted, with a new sawdust-lined touchline separating the players from the corpses. At the end of the first half, the players immediately changed ends and started the second half. Stanley Matthews was on the Stoke team, and later confirmed that he was sickened that the game was allowed to continue. 33 people were killed. More than 500 were injured. The government announced an inquiry into the disaster, and in August 1946, England and Scotland drew 2-2 at Main Road in an additional fixture in aid of the disaster fund. The match was a sellout, raising £12,000. This is the account of William Farrington. I am 11 years of age and I am a schoolboy. I live at 51 John Taylor Street, Bolton. On the 9th of March 1946, I went to a football match at Burnham Park. I went with another boy, but I lost him at the ground. I was stood near the way in from the boys' turnstiles, but at nearly 2.40pm I couldn't see and I made my way to the boys' entrance to get off. I saw the man at the turnstiles stop taking money and about four men got over the turnstiles to get out before they let some people in. I got myself to near the big gate where some men were trying to open it, but they couldn't get out. A man with a black overcoat, white scarf and a grey trilby then started fiddling with the lock on the gate, gave it a shove and it opened. As he did that, he told me and two other boys to get out, which we did, and the man, along with three of us, followed. I got about four or five yards outside the gate when a big man came running and shouted, come on Charlie, now's our chance, and all the people who were queuing a bit further down rushed to the gate to get inside. The passage, though, got blocked, and a lot of men, including some Air Force men, forced their way in. A man in a white Macintosh pulled me to the wall to get out of the way of the rush. A policeman then came in and shut the gate, and a little bit of the crowd was still trying to get inside. After he managed to shut it, a policeman on horseback then came and got the men away from it, but then the crowd climbed over the sleepers. I came away after that. The Burnham Park disaster of 1946 has been described as football's forgotten tragedy. Perhaps a country which had lost hundreds of thousands of people to war was a little more battle-hardened than we are today. And as well as this, a relative lack of media coverage meant that the shocking filmed footage of Bradford, Heisel or Hillsborough simply doesn't exist for this particular tragedy. 
But this all came about as a result of something that would come to be considered the defining feature of professional football in England as the country tried to come to terms with a second devastating war in 30 years. A huge attendance. A country again on the brink of bankruptcy had to rebuild and full employment meant improvements in both pay and working conditions. By the end of the war, football was well placed to grow again as a form of cheap mass entertainment. In a country in which any investment made was going to be spent on an infrastructure that had been shattered by six years of war, football was inexpensive and available in just about every city, town or village in the country. In one sense, football in this country was about to embark on a boom period that it hasn't been able to quite reproduce ever since. In another though, the home nations were about to learn some chastening lessons about a new world order that had grown in world football while they were causing arguments about payments to amateur players and generally looking the other way. It was a change that would be brought graphically home to the domestic audience in the first years of the following decade. Give me land, lots of land Under starry skies above Don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in Let me be by myself in the evening breeze And listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever, but I ask you please Don't fence me in Just turn me loose, let me straddle my old saddle Underneath the Listening to this 200% podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Find us on Facebook by searching 200%.net or on Twitter at 2 W O H D. Be good to each other.